Welcome to another author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is honored to have with us author Sarah Brunsholt. I hope I got that right. You um, did perfectly. Thank you. Thank you. Whose new book is coming out in January. It's called The Divine Proverb of Streusel. Before we begin today, I'd like to let those tuning in know the Poison Pen does have copies of Sarah's new book on order, and we would be happy to hold one for you or put it in the mail once it's published in January. Just give us a call or go online to the Poison Pen bookstore. Now I'd like to welcome Sarah. Thank you so much for having me today, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. My first question usually to authors is, as a reader, I'm fascinated where you got to where you're at, the backstory behind becoming an author. So what can you tell us about Sarah before you became published? Yeah, so I was one of those people who always dreamed of being a novelist. Um, that started in middle school with my English teacher, who was the first to encourage me to pursue creative writing. Um, and it's all I've ever really wanted to be. Um, went to went on to college to get an English degree, you know, with the thought of uh, using that for creative writing. But uh, my bills had other ideas, so um, I um, ended up in corporate communications, um, and I'm still there actually as a day job. Um, I still work specifically in employee communications. Um, did some um, uh, short stint at the Federal Reserve as, as part of my day job career, uh, which was very interesting experience. Um, but it was in 2012 that I, you know, started to get the, the gray hairs and, and realizing that, you know, if this dream that I have nurtured in my heart uh, for so many years, if I truly believe that that's the direction I needed to go, then I needed to invest more time and, and money and effort and discipline into seeing if this is really uh, where I needed to be. And so started attending writers conferences in 2012 and learning the industry and um, started to get serious about working on a novel. And it was about exactly 10 years later that my first book was published. So, yeah. I understand correctly, part of your um, journey to publication was finding the right agent, and that's not always easy for an author. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I was just having that conversation with an aspiring author the other day. Um, finding an agent, especially if you're wanting to be traditionally published through a publishing house, of course, finding a literary agent is that first step, because a lot of publishing houses only look at agented authors and um, finding the right agent is is critical I mean they they are a business partner in in um, every sense of the word um, as well as a coach and encourager and um, I learned the hard way you know you have to find the agent who um, understands who you want to be as an author what your values are and um, is willing to come alongside you in, in that journey and help you learn and grow along the way. And, um, and so fortunately I, I did, after a long winding path, ended up with my current agent who is all of those things and more. That's great. I think it's also kind of a good piece of advice to aspiring writers that you really have to be careful about that, finding the right relationship with your agent. 
Absolutely, yes. And it, it was, um, I, I was blessed to have a mentor author, um, somebody who had, been, she's retired at this point, but um, she had published for many years, has dozens of, of novels to, to her credit. And I was blessed to have her as um, somebody who was essentially looking out for me, you know, as, as this newbie person who was still learning. And it, she was the one who, who kind of taught me the, that lesson of you got to find the right partner in that. Yeah. So your first book was published and it's The Extraordinary Deaths of Mrs. Kipp. And in many ways, it's really a very insightful book. It's a thoughtful book. It's a look at life and death. What can you tell us about your debut novel? Yeah, so um, the basic premise of it is uh, a young reporter who uh, begrudgingly takes an assignment to interview an elderly hospice patient. And, um, but it's this unexpected friendship that forms out of her uh, kind of putting her own pride aside and actually listening um, and getting to know someone of her previous generation. And um, so I, I love that book um, in the sense that I personally enjoy learning the life stories of others, particularly those who have gone before us and um, who have walked a, a lot of the experiences that, that we can relate to. And um, so, I'm, and I'm sorry, John, the original question that you were asking about it, could you repeat that for me? I think I've forgotten it too, but oh. <laughs> let me, um, um, just you've kind of told us a little bit about it. Um, what I got from the, well, I got many things from the book, but one of the things as a reader was that you were kind of asking us as we each go through life to sometimes think about maybe putting aside what we want in life, mm. what we think is important for what really, sometimes we want things and they're not really what are important. We have to look at what's the big picture is. Yes, I, and I think that's true. You know, both of the characters, the, the elderly patient, Mrs. Kipp, Clara Kipp, and the young reporter, Aidan Kelly, um, they both are uh, dreamers. You know, they, they have certain ideas about how they want their lives to go. And um, circumstances have kind of forced them to reconsider, you know, what is it that I really want out of life and, and what does make uh, the biggest impact? Um, and so toward the end, they, they kind of grow through that and realize, as you said, you know, what is the most important thing that I want to leave? If I'm building a legacy, if we, if we think of it that way, you know, what, what is that legacy that I want to leave? And, um, and, and because your legacy will, will, nothing, um, shows what is most important to you, like the legacy you're leaving behind. And so, yeah. It, it's a lot of uh, thoughtfulness um, through discovering what does that mean to, to me, the reader. I also appreciated the way you kind of introduce um, hospice into the story because many people are not familiar with it until it intrudes in their own life or they have to deal with it in their own way. And it really is a remarkable um, approach to helping people at the end of their life cycle. Yes, I 100% I agree. You know, hospice is um, something that, that we, my family has walked through um, a couple of different times. Um, and actually, as I was writing the book, my father-in-law was in hospice care. And, um, and it was his nurse that, that was a subject matter expert for me as, as I was trying to understand um, 
in more depth of, of just the, uh, the approach of hospice and the holistic approach that they have to caring for people in their final chapters. And it's just such a moving thing. Um, and, a lot, and, I, and I've gotten this reaction from readers is um, they, we tend to shy away from, you know, the end of life stories and, you know, kind of seeing it for just the, and it can be ugly, right? We can be honest about that. It, it can be very unpleasant, but there's also a lot of beauty to it. There, there's a lot of beauty in the death, which is a, a line in the book. Um, if we're willing to sit with that ugly part, with the, the hard parts, that's when we can find the beauty that's hidden within it. And so that was definitely a lesson, an eye-opening thing for me as I was researching, um, researching the book and, and talking to those who, um, other loved ones who, who have lost someone or um, people who work in hospice care. And, um, and, and that's one of the resounding things that I heard over and over again is, yes, it's hard, but, but there's a lot of um, dignity at the end of life stage as well. That's a wonderful way to phrase it. Um, that brings us to your new book, The Divine Proverb of Streusel. What can you tell us about that book? Yeah, so um, kind of borrowing on that concept of being willing to sit with the hard and the ugly in life with the hope of finding the beauty. Um, so the book is about a young woman who is navigating a family crisis by cooking her way through her great grandmother's German recipes. And it's through this process that she is rediscovering what family means and in um, the roots that we have and how do those roots impact the, the people that we are today in our circumstances today. So it's, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's loosely based on my own family heritage and, and story. So it allowed me to mine uh, family history on, on my side as well and got to talk to a lot of uh, family members who told me stories I never heard, um, which didn't necessarily make it into the book, but it, but it certainly um, shaped my own view of, of where we came from. When I was reading it and after I'd read it, I really thought for me, there were four different words. They all start with F coincidentally that um, I thought were important to the book. And that was family, forgiveness, faith, and food. Can you talk a little bit about how those play roles in the story? Absolutely, yeah, and I love that, the, the four Fs. Um, well, let's start with the food. So I, I feel like food is, is a universal conduit to understanding culture and understanding um, the stories around the people within that culture. And so food was just for the main character, Nikki, it's the food that initially drives her in, you know, the, these recipes that for dishes that she's never heard of, never tasted, but she wants to give it a try. And it's through creating that food um, that she begins to unpack um, sort of what's um, the faith that was packaged together with these recipes. So to back up a little bit, she finds this notebook that is filled in, in her late grandmother's belongings that's filled with German recipes. And each one of those recipes is paired with a proverb or a, a, a wise saying. 
And all of those wise sayings she quickly discovers are not only based on faith, but they are based on life experiences that whoever it was that wrote this notebook clearly had walked through some really difficult things in life, um, including with family. Mm-hmm. And um, again, you know, we, we can learn from other people's stories and, and how they navigated things. And so it's the food that initially draws Nikki in. But while she's there, you know, she's learning about the faith and the family struggles that this author has had. And all of that leads her to question, you know, what, what it, she's being called to forgive within this family crisis, but can she really do that, you know, with, with the tools that she's been given? Um, you talked a little bit about the recipes and I found them fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about how did you, I mean, are these all family recipes? How did you research them? What I found interesting was we don't realize that recipes from 50 years or more back then, they're not like recipes today. They're not spelled out with every step. They're very, they, you had to kind of, they assumed you knew things. That is so true. Yes. And the um, original intent of recipes was just to kind of capture the general idea. But the idea is that you would be cooking alongside your mom or your grandma, you know, and that's how these skills were passed down from generation to generation. You were literally in the kitchen side by side doing it together. So you didn't need to spell out exactly how many teaspoons or um, all the the intricate steps of how to make a, a streuselkuchen, for instance, which is a German crumb cake. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that this is sort of loosely based on my own um, heritage. So I grew up in a um, area in rural Missouri, uh, rural Northeast Missouri that was settled by German immigrants in the 1800s. And um, a descendant, as a lot of people in that area are, of those original immigrants. And, but even though I had that German heritage, um, the German recipes kind of fell by the wayside over the years. So I personally had never, eaten a lot of these these foods or heard of them myself. Um, So it did take a lot of um, uh, cookbook searching and uh, Google searching and and um, books, uh, other books to discover what are even the the traditional German foods that would have made it to middle America in the 1800s. Um, because the ingredients that you have in Germany are not going to be the same as, as what you have in Missouri in the 1800s. Um, so what were some of those recipes that a farm wife would have captured in, in a notebook? And, um, and then I had to make those myself and <laughs> much to my family's delight. And some of them were, um, were much more family friendly than others, I would say. So yeah, a combination of research. I did find a few recipes in in my own great grandmother's um, belongings, and some of those have made it into the book as well. Um, there's a cookie recipe and there's a cabbage recipe that are taken directly from my family collection. Um, but other than that, yeah, it was sort of uh, borrowing um, from other people and in, in learning what are traditional foods. That kind of brings me to my next question, because I had vaguely kind of knew about this, but your book brought it back to my attention again. 
Um, one of the reasons we may not know so much about part of our heritage, if you're coming from Germany, is that um, around the time of World War One, there was a real effort to distance if you lived in the United States yourself from Germany. That's correct. Yes. And that was true even in middle America that um, and that certainly happened in my family. Um, so, yeah, World War One um, definitely brought to light um, for a lot of German immigrants that, that there were some some anti-German sentiment um, um, and rightfully so, you know, among America. Germany was not kind to us at that, that time period. Um, and so, for instance, in, and this is captured in the book as well, um, some of the history there, the, the Lutheran church that is central in the story, you know, one of the character points out that if you look at uh, the directory, uh, the, the, um, the listings of baptisms and confirmations and weddings throughout that time period, you'll see names change. They, they went from the German spelling to the American spelling, and a lot of times they changed the pronunciations of their names as well to be more Americanized. Um, they dropped the language. That was a big, big change um, in the area that I grew up in. My grandparents uh, were born in the um, 1914, so you know, just a little bit before America was drawn into World War One, and their first words were German. And you know that's all their their parents spoke at home, but then you know when the when the war was in full swing, it, it kind of became dangerous for them to to go to town and, and be speaking German. So um, they were they dropped German altogether at at home, at school, at church, and English became the the language that um, they knew for the rest of their lives. They they never spoke. German again. So yeah, it's things like that. Um, and so I do think that there's truth in that where these, these recipes that I, I think in some German families in, in Missouri, they probably had a longer lifespan and they, and they made it through that time period. But for my family and, and families where I lived, it, they kind of stopped, you know, with that, my great grandparents. One of the other things I appreciated, appreciated about the book was there's a piece of advice that's repeated throughout, and I'm hoping I'm getting it right, but one of the characters tells Nikki, just do the next thing when you're in yeah. a, a difficult situation. Can you kind of expand about what that means? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and do the next thing is, um, it, it actually originated from a poem back in the 1800s, I think it was published in the 1800s, it was popularized in the eight, 1980s by Elizabeth Elliot, who, who was a, a missionary. And, um, and I kind of think of the way that she framed it um, when, when she was sharing the story is sometimes our situations, our circumstances can be so overwhelming. You know, there, there's just so, it, it, it's just like this gray cloud is around us and, and we can't see very far in front of us. But the but we do have control over the next thing that we do, and we can we have that choice always to what is the next step that I want to take, and if I'm choosing to hopefully we're choosing to take that in a positive direction. So um, and I think that's also true with with writing a book too. It's it's good advice for writing a book. It's 
don't worry about, you know, all 50 pages that you have to go. Just worry about the next sentence, you know, worry about the next paragraph. Just do the next thing. That's terrific because I was going to ask you about your writing process and you kind of led into that. You've now completed two books. Does it get easier after writing the first book? Does the next book become easier? Is it just a different challenge for you? Yeah, it seems like it's more of a different challenge. And one thing that I learned is that going from book one to book two is is a significant uh, jump. It's it's because for the first time you're writing to expectations, and you know you you have readership now that, and you have a you have a publisher who is expecting certain things. Um, and you don't necessarily have that with book one, you know, as you're writing that book one, you, you have um, more freedom and, but now you're writing a deadline and, um, and so there's, there's just more pressure, I, I would say, uh, with book number two and um, more expectations that you're writing under. Um, so that can be a significant learning curve. But I think that's, you know, that's the biggest hurdle, I'm told, by authors who are much farther along than I am that going from book one to book two is the biggest jump. But then from then on out, you know, I, I don't know if it gets easier, but it's just, you, you know more what to expect. And I've learned as I'm writing book number three right now, I'm learning that it's, it's okay for that first draft to just not be worthy of the light of day because you always have the chance to go back and edit, you know, and, and you have people on your team that will, that will help you develop that book um, to the final polished version. As a writer, do you find yourself when you're approaching a new project, do you like to know lots of things in advance? Do you just have a germ of an idea and think I'm going to go with that? I know writers are all over the place when it comes to that kind of what is your route to starting a book? I tend to think of the premise first, you know, just have that that germ of an idea. And then um, I write character-driven stories, so I dive deep into the characters after that. Once I have the seed of an idea, I want to know who the characters are. You know, what are their goals, their motivations, what, are, what is preventing them from getting to their goals, and really um, developing out who they are, their personalities, and then that informs how the plot is going to go you know, based on what they're trying to do and what's conflicting with that, um, that's when I start to plot out the points. But I do it in a, in a fairly loose way because I also like, I, I structure is good um, and I enjoy structure, but I also like the freedom to discover and, and let the characters go in, in a different direction if, if they want to. So I'm, I'm a bit of a mix of what they call the plotter and the writing by your, the seat of your pants, the pantser. So, but that's generally how I approach it. I think you're also kind of um, inspirational to aspiring writers because you have a day job. So you need to find time to work on your other passion, which is writing. Can you, I mean, is it something that you actively set aside a certain time of day or does it just vary as your life schedule varies. Can you talk a little bit about the um, challenges in being juggling two different careers, I guess we'll say it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and there are a lot of authors who, who are in this position as well. Um, I, I am fortunate to work part time for my day job. So that certainly helps. Um, but yes, I, I do structure my week and, and I can't, at this point in my life, I can only do it at a week view <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, a month out or so. Um, so week by week, you know, my, just depending on my schedule, I also have children in the home. Um, so a lot of it depends on their schedule as well, but I just, I, I have learned to be very attention, intentional and, um, and receptive to those time pockets of time when I can, um, sneak away in, into my writing desk and, and put some words on the page. But I also make an effort, uh, with my husband's support, um, to, block out weekends or block out nights where I, I can do a writing retreat um, or I can one night a week, you know, he takes care of dinner and, and I go to the library and, and I have, you know, three, four hours of uninterrupted time. But it's all about finding the rhythm within um, your family schedule, within your home schedule, but always making it a priority to get that writing time in. That's a good message um, to give. Let's shift direction a little bit because I have a quote from your new book that I thought was really wonderful and it um, kind of plays into the question I have for you. The quote you had put was, the books someone chooses to keep tell you a lot about their character. What books would we find on your shelf and what would they tell us about Sarah? <laughs> Um, a lot of the books um, that you will find on, on my shelf, um, they tend to be about real people or based on real people. Um, again, I, I value life stories. Um, so you'll find biographies, you will find uh, historical fiction, um, you will find a lot of contemporary fiction. Um, they would, they're all books that have a note of hope in them in some way. Um, whether that's, you know, a, a faith-based author like I am, or if it's somebody that I'm a huge fan of, uh, Friedrich Bachman, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, he writes some really hard things, but there's always that, that thread of hope at, at the end. And so I, I gravitate toward storytellers who, who can tell a really good story, but tell it in, in a realistic way. And I, I don't like sugarcoating things. Um, so I like authors who, who boldly discuss um, real issues of the human condition or the human experience, but always point the reader to hope. Have there been anything recently that you've read that you'd want to suggest to other readers? Well, actually, what I'm reading right now is The Long March Home by Tosca Lee and uh, Marcus Brotherton, which I, I believe you had on the podcast um, um, a few months ago. Yeah. And I highly, highly recommend that book. Um, I haven't quite finished it yet, but it's just, it's, it's a World War II novel set in the Pacific theater and um, incredible writing, very realistic uh, battle scenes. And, um, but again, you know, it's about those three childhood friends who are, who are trying to navigate this um, horrific situation that they're in and, and find their way home. 
You mentioned um, something about faith-based fiction, inspirational fiction. I know that if you're not familiar with this particular type of book or story, there's a lot of misperceptions. You can somehow think you know what it is, but you really don't. For someone who's never read in that particular, we'll call it genre, what would you like to tell them, tell them about it? Mm -hmm. So I would say um, faith-based fiction is, it's a fiction story, but it's, it's told through the lens of a particular worldview. So in my case, um, you know, I write fiction stories, um, but told through a Christian worldview. So it's kind of um, looking at the world as it really is, but how, how do we reconcile the world as it really is with the faith that we have that we use as, as a lens to try to understand it. So um, I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. I, I know there's, there's uh, it's not just Christian, it's, you know, there's other faith-based uh, writers who, who write from different worldviews, but generally that's how I understand it and describe it. I think it's also um, important if you're not, if you haven't read or not familiar with it, there isn't one faith-based type of fiction, just as there isn't one type of romance, novel or one type of mystery novel there's i mean you may read a particular faith-based fiction book and think i don't like that but it's just you may not like that particular book there's other books out there true and, and i don't know if this is what you're referring to but there's uh, there's contemporary there's sci-fi there's like all the different there's mysteries um there's all different types of uh, books within that category so don't always judge one a genre by one book, I guess is the message yes. we'd want to give. Um, you mentioned a little bit about your working on another project. Is there anything you would like to tell us or can tell us about what's next? Yeah, so working on book number three. And um, at this point, what I can say is that it is about a mom and her grown daughters who go on a bookish road trip around the Midwest. So visiting different sites relate that were either um, settings for a particular book, or they were the hometowns of a particular author. So very, very exciting. And I've had a chance to visit some of these places and they're, some of them are, are pretty neat. That sounds terrific. Are some of the books favorites of your own that you include? Well, um, so I'm in Kansas City. So uh, Nebraska is not too far from me and uh, Willa Cather's books um i i really enjoy willa cather i grew up in hannibal missouri which is famous for mark twain and so you know i've, I've always got a, a sentimental spot for mark twain's work um before we run out of time and i can't believe how quickly it's gone by how can readers learn more about you and your books are you on social media I am, yes, and I, I'd be glad to um, to find them as well. So at sarahbrunsbold.com, and then I am primarily on Instagram and Facebook and would love to see you there. I think at one point you'd written, written to someone else or talked to someone else about, we never quite sometimes understand how important the connection is between an author and a reader. And sometimes as a reader, you think, oh, they don't care. You know, why, why is this person going to be interested? But it can really be a powerful connection point for an author. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, it is 100% true. Those reader emails or DMs, um, they, you, you just never know what kind of day the author is having. And so to get that word of encouragement or to get just a quick line of what that story meant to you, 
it can really make an author's day. It's, it's probably, to me, it's, it's even as exciting as, as a royalty check. So it just, it means the world to know that what we've labored over is, it means something to a reader. It's finding an audience. That's great. It's been a wonderful quick tour through um, Sarah Brunsvold's books and her life. I want to thank Sarah for taking time to be with us. Her new book, The Divine Proverb of Strusel, will be here soon, next January. It's not too early to pre-order through your favorite independent bookstore or ask your library to purchase a copy if you're a library reader. I want to thank Sarah for joining us today and for all of you tuning in to another author chat. We look forward to seeing you virtually next time. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.